Hi, this is Dr. Moisha Pearl, Director of the Neurofeedback International Academy. Hello, this is Yuri Kropotov, the head of the laboratory of the Institute of the Human Brain in St. Petersburg, the Institute of the Russian Academy of Sciences. Hi, this is Mirjana Askovic, Director of the Australian Neurofeedback Institute. You're listening to the Neuromoodle Network Podcast. Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring neuropsychologists Dr. Laura Jansen, Dr. Skip Wren, Tech Wiz, Santiago Braun, and neurofeedback legend Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast and I'm more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete and today we have special guest Mariana Askovic, Director of the Australian Neurofeedback Institute. Yuri Kropodov from the Human Brain Institute, and Dr. Moshe Pearl, Director of the Neurofeedback International uh, Academy. But before we start, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking, Tor Talk, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, EG and Me, Sadia M, Jonathan Rowan, January Terrell, and Loretta T. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that has been around for 15 years. Tor Talk wants more people to discover text-to-speech. Joshua M. at Alternative Behavioral Therapy Neurofeedback Service in Vancouver, Washington, says stop on in if you're in the area and need a 19-channel scan. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. Okay, welcome to the show, and I apologize in advance with the names. Mariana, Jury, and Dr. Moshe. Moshe. We'll start. We'll start with Mariana. Uh, please tell us about yourself and the Australian Neurofeedback Institute. I'm a senior psychologist. I'm trauma therapist, and I've been using neurofeedback in my work since 2003. Um, I'm based in Sydney, Australia, and I work for the service that uh, works with torture and trauma survivors. So we are a New South Wales-based service, government-funded. And we work with refugees and asylum seekers. My work for this service started in 2001 when I arrived to Australia as a refugee. And I've been working that service since then. My journey uh, to neurofeedback started with Dr. Moshe Pearl, <laughs> who is a legend in Australia, uh, who was my first trainer and mentor. Um, since then, uh, I've introduced to my service also quantitative EEG in 2010, and then Jay Gunkoman was our mentor, and then we started our research with, with event-related potentials, and then Professor Yuri Kropotov uh, was our mentor and supporter. So as you can see, everyone uh, is connected. The world is really small. Well, you guys are connected, and we had a listener's uh reach out to us from Australia. And they said they're a big fan of the show, listening in Melbourne and uh, responding to our call at the end of the podcast for nominations for future podcasts. And they, they mentioned uh, all three of you guys to come on. So we said, all right, we'll, we'll reach out. And uh, here we are. So we want to say, hey, Tyler, great job. Great suggestion. Everybody's here. Jay, you brought, you bring up uh, uh, Yuri uh, quite a bit. Uh, who did you meet first on the panel? Um, I, I believe I actually ran into uh, the Australian group in 
1999, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, th there was a meeting over there. Uh, it was the first one that uh, the International Society had, uh, had arranged. And I, I believe uh, I met them at that point. But uh, Yuri and I uh, crossed paths at the International Society meeting uh, at the turn of the century uh, when it was held in Monterey, uh, when I was the international president. And um, I invited them, all the uh, international folks at the meeting to have a free lunch and to consider starting a chapter, uh, which ended up uh, forming the European Group uh, Society for Applied Neuroscience. So um, I was there at the start of the Australian Society and the start of the international uh, uh, group in Europe. Um, uh, just, just pretty much by accident, I bump into these things, you know. So, um, but it, it's it's been a pleasure uh, uh, working with the, the group in Australia, the Torture and Trauma Survivor Group uh, uh, that that I started working with. Starts S T I R T T S and the T T S is Torture Trauma Survivors, and. Uh, uh, it, it was an interesting, uh, different e.g. profile than the simple ADD or depressives that we had been used to working with very commonly. Um, and uh, they have some very interesting, uh, unique e.g. signatures that uh, end up being associated with them. Is neurofeedback more common than it is in the States or what, which uh, country has picked it up uh, quicker or is it about the same? Just curious. My feeling is it's about the same. Population-wise, Australia is about 10 times smaller than the United States. So we have probably 150, 200 active neurofeedback practitioners here. In the States, you probably have a few thousand, maybe a few more, maybe 10,000. I'm not sure exactly. And the, it's not quantity, it's quality, though, Moshe. So. Of course, of course. <laughs> of course. So. so the EEGs, the QEEGs, the brain scans, it's... You, you have rugby, you have... Rugby is more popular than American football, right? I would I would imagine that sport gets a lot of uh, trauma. I was just wondering if you've had a lot of work with athletes in Australia. I haven't. Um, they don't play much rugby uh, in Melbourne. They play more in Sydney and in Queensland. But, you know, every contact sport, you're going to have brain injuries. I'm just wondering if they're getting the scan, any athlete are getting the scans, you know, before the season to, to get a baseline to compare it to. I was wondering if that was uh, catching on yet, especially now with the uh, dry sensor caps that are out there. I, I was just wondering if that, that was catching on anywhere. Jay and, and Yuri, your, your name has come up a bunch of times. I know because I've copied and pasted your profile and put it on our, on our YouTube channel so everybody could understand uh, who you are. Could, could you go over your background, how you started in neurofeedback? Uh, love to hear it in your own words. You're, uh, you're in Russia, right? Yeah, I'm in Russia. Yeah, that's, that's true. Although I'm professor in uh, several universities uh, in Norway, in, in Switzerland, in Poland. But yes, uh, I permanently live in Russia. And actually, I have a very long history. I'm quite old person. Yeah, I think that two we Jay are on the same age, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I believe so. You both uh, very young. I, 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 I won't. I won't tell you exactly how old you are. You know. <laughs> yeah, 
And, uh, but I think that I quite differ from all of you because I'm, by the first education, I'm a physicist. Basically, I spent uh, the first 20 years of my career just um, uh, analyzing uh, the data from the human brain directly from the implanted electrodes. So we recorded different physiological parameters using implanted electrodes like uh, uh, oxygen, slow uh, cortical potentials, uh, like impedance, like uh, impulse activity of neurons, so local field potentials, uh, quite many things. And uh, I simply analyzed it. Then I spent probably 10 years of uh, uh, doing different uh, neuronal networks modeling, but but I think that uh, you know in 1991 uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, and uh, all my attempts uh, to study the brain they just uh, stopped because there was no money to for research, nothing worked. And that is why I decided that I need to start working with something which is uh, real and which is uh, which will bring some money to the laboratory. And so that is how I went to the field of neurofeedback. So, you know, in Russia, we, we definitely have a lot of ADHD, but uh, we don't have access to Ritalin, to any psychostimulants, so that we actually was forced to work with neurofeedback, wrote some uh, letters to different people in the United States uh, whom I knew by uh, research papers, and uh, they uh, responded to me, and that is how I met uh, um, Barry Sturman, who uh, was having a kind of workshop in Norway, I met him and I decided to start working with neurofeedback. It was 2000. So I started neurofeedback at 2000. We started doing uh, what we actually knew, uh, learned how to do it. We started doing EEG, EEG spectra analysis, and of course, event-related potentials. And we immediately realized that event-related potentials are quite uh, a good measure of brain functioning, and they're quite flexible on one hand. Uh, so if you do some, some intervention with the brain, so you will, you see the changes in the in, in these parameters in event-related potentials. And we tried to see the same in, in the quantitative EEG, I mean the EEG spectra, and we were not unable to, to, to find the differences. But we found the difference in European. And I think that uh, I came to conclusion that, that, that European, they have uh, higher uh, potential, higher diagnostic and prognostic power than uh, quantitative EEG. I prepared some uh, slides for today to demonstrate why I'm thinking this. Uh, just as Barry Sturman used to say, show me the data. So I'm going to show some of the data to you and to demonstrate why I think that event-related potentials, uh, that is uh, the parameter that we need 
to to add to our method in clinical practice. So you know the psychiatry and uh, and neurology are becoming the cognitive neuroscience. So why ERPs are needed in clinical practice? So uh, look, we are uh, looking at the brain through uh, different windows. Okay. And uh, uh, one of the window is provided by spontaneous EEG. And the other window is provided by event-related potentials. Okay, and uh, here I show you the grand average spectrograms. So the, the, this is a kind of uh, the method that everyone is using. This is EEG spectrum, uh, grand average EEG spectrum, and you can see that there are some. And this EEG recorded in a group of healthy subjects, they are children. And you can see that uh, there are some bumps on the EEG spectrum that corresponds to different frequencies, like there is a frontal midlife pattern rhythm, there is a, a parietal alpha theta rhythm, low alpha rhythm, and there are mu rhythms and occipital alpha rhythm. So <clears throat> there are not many rhythmicities in the brain and all of them, they have certain functional meaning and they reflect a certain mechanism of cortical self-regulation. Okay, and here I demonstrate uh, the rhythmicities uh, that can be recorded from uh, scalp electrodes. And uh, we have a family of alpha rhythms, like mu rhythm, parietal alpha rhythm, rhythm occipital alpha rhythm. We have frontal midlife beta rhythm, and we have a family of beta rhythm, including the frontal beta rhythm, uh, the romantic beta rhythm, the central beta rhythm. And each of these rhythms, uh, they have a specific meaning. And um, uh, the alpha rhythm, uh, they actually, the functional meaning uh, is uh, closing uh, the sensory gate to the cortex. So when uh, alpha rhythm appears, so the gate is closed. Uh, the frontal midlife edge, uh, the functional meaning is uh, to open the gate to the hippocampus. So when uh, the, uh, the frontal midlife edge appears, so the gate is <coughs> open. And the better rhythm, they have quite different uh, mechanisms. And, uh, and uh, uh, we actually know quite little about the, the mechanism of better rhythm generation. Mm -hmm. And here I present uh, these uh, independent components that corresponds to different rhythms. So the, the first is frontal midlife theta. And each line is a, a subject, is a, 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 a child from our database. So 250 uh, children. And you can see here that not every one of the subject has uh, the frontal midline theta in EEG spectrum, only a few of them. And uh, the same goes to, um, uh, to mu rhythm, 
there are about 20% of healthy subjects having mu rhythm. And, and uh, here I present uh, the EEG spectra, C3, C4, the, the area that generate mu rhythm. And uh, this is a supposition of EEG spectra of uh, about 20 uh, children. Oh, I think that of, of age 15 years old. And you can see that there is quite large uh, variability in EEG spectrum, okay? And because of this uh, high variability, the comparison with the grand average, actually uh, you get quite uh, a low confidence level of the deviation from the reference. Uh, now, uh, uh, let us talk about event-related potentials. So uh, you can design many um, tasks, many, many um, psychological tasks in which you can record event-related potentials. So we are using five different tasks and one of them is skewed go, no, go task in which uh, stimuli are presented in pairs like animal, 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 plant. And the subject has to press a button to two animals, animal, animal. And uh, here I show event-related potentials computed grand average event-related potentials. Uh, this is FZ, CZ, and PZ. And the green is a go condition, animal, animal, go. Uh, red is no go condition, animal, plant, no go and uh, black is uh, ignore condition, okay? And you can see the, the topographies of the different uh, waves that can be um, selected uh, in this uh, ERP wave, like P3Q, CNV, P3Go, P3No-Go. You see these are topographies and you can measure amplitude. And remember, I told you that uh, there is quite large variability in EEG spectra. And uh, opposite to this, uh, I show you the quite nice uh, variability. Uh, and I would say consistently in, in event-related potential. So this is a PZ electrode. And each line is a subject. So I think that altogether it's about 500 subjects. So each line is a subject. And you can see that almost every subject has this component, okay? And you also can see that the, there is a systematic change of the latency. So uh, this is <clears throat> the age changes from 17 at the bottom to 84 at uh, the top, okay? And... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, the other beauty of event-related potentials, so you can apply uh, different methods of blind source separation. And one of them, um, uh, uh, the, the example of application, one of them is shown here. So these are uh, independent components. I mean, that lettered component, hidden component. 
you say, and they have quite different functional meaning. I'm not going to, to tell about the functional meaning, but believe me that we spent 15 years trying to understand the functional meaning of this component. So we know quite a lot about, uh, about this topic. And just as example, I, I, am sh I show you um, one component, the component that is located at, at Z. This is a topography of this component. The functional meaning of this component is that it's actually responsible for, for quality control. And uh, on the left, you see the grand area shear piece computed for a group of healthy subjects. Uh, the group was about 200 healthy subjects. And uh, the green line is GOA condition. The red line is uh, no GOA condition. And, uh, and on the left, the same, that is uh, computed for a group of uh, patients with schizophrenia. And you see huge difference between ERPs. So in healthy controls, we can see a part, frontal part of contingent negative variation which is a preparation to receive a stimulus and to press a button. Then in the case of no, uh, is no, no, no go stimulus, we have a, 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 a deflection, negative deflection, which we call N2, which uh, reflected the, uh, the, uh, the process of detection conflict. So here is, N2 detection conflict and P3 is a monitoring of the, the of this conflict. Okay, and these are healthy subjects. And in the case of schizophrenic patients, you don't see it. You don't uh, you, you don't see the preparation. You don't see detection and conflict. You don't see the component of the uh, of the monitoring of this conflict. Okay. And uh, the <clears throat> effect size of these differences is quite large, it's definitely more than one. So that means that it can be used in the clinical practice. And, and the beauty of this, look, the effect size is big. The, the test reliability we know is, is quite big. And uh, this means that this component, I mean, th this approach can be used in clinical practice. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, immediately you can say where to place electrodes of doing any intervention like neurofeedback, it could be TGCS, TMS, whatever. <clears throat> and uh, here I just show you <clears throat> actually the same, uh, quite large uh, variability in the age spectrum, in the frontal mean life aterism, and uh, uh, quite consistent uh, ERPs in the case of group of uh, healthy subjects. And uh, here I show you that uh, the ERPs, they are quite independent from EEG uh, spectra. Here is uh, three subjects one, two, and three, and this is ERPs in comparison to the group of uh, grand average group. You see um, quite nice actually correspondence between uh, the grand average and the individual ERPs. And here is EEG spectra computed uh, for this uh, EEG. 
in uh, in during the task and you can see you can see that each of the subject has quite different topography one subject has a new rhythm the other subject has a parietal alpha rhythm and this uh, alpha uh, rhythm are quite different it's, i think that it tells you that uh, europeans and even relate that is specter they actually flat quite different uh, parameters of brain functioning and uh, to summarize uh, our studies, uh, because we, we did quite a lot of studies in different brain dysfunctions like ADHD, autistic spectrum disorder, OCD, schizophrenia, Parkinsonian uh, disease, and anxiety. <clears throat> and you can see that each of these uh, dysfunction has a quite specific deviation, pattern of deviation from the reference deviation from normality and actually tells you that each of these diseases have must have a quite different approach using different methods of neuromodulation including tms tdcs and neurofeedback so this briefly briefly what i'm trying to teach people during the, the last 20 years jay know this and we with jay i remember jay that we were having a workshop in lisbon remember Kashkais in Kashkais, just just outside of lisbon on, on the coast yeah yes. and actually this is actually the first time when i tried to persuade people uh, with the, in the neurofeedback uh, field that uh, to use uh, event-related potential you see, some of them actually responded, like Andy Miller, like you also. I think that you also become a, 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 a kind of person who believe in your piece. Yes, and, and uh, it was in cash case uh, that I asked you if you were using ICA, and you said, oh, we tried PCA, principal component analysis, and it just doesn't work. And I handed you the paper from uh, Schwartz Computational from Scott McKaig and his group. Uh, two weeks after that workshop, I got a disk in the mail with your software with ICA implemented on it. And you received the uh, Russian Prize for Science for using the ICA on the EEG and ERP. Uh, uh, congratulations. I I thought of it as a simple tool to take out artifact, and you realize the the richness of it seeing meaningful components. So yeah, uh, yeah. you you you, you uh, well, you're the real neuroscientist. I'm 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 the tech, you know. So I thought of it as a way to do it. I'm pretending, Jay. I'm pretending <laughs> to be a, a neuroscientist, but in my heart, I'm still a, a physicist. <laughs> so. Uh, uh, I have to suggest that people who are interested in your work should pick up, you have two books. Uh, one was a, a direct result of the cash case uh, lecture, uh, the first book, and then your second book on uh, neuromarkers in psychiatry, which is a really excellent reference uh, for psychiatrists to, that want to learn uh, you know, biological psychiatry as opposed to just listening to stories and making wild guesses about medication. So um, uh, uh, I, I would urge people to uh, look at your two books as, as a, a really quite good reference material. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. You know, I have a question. Excuse me. Uh, Yuri, um, I, I'm curious about the international uh, 
uh, equivalent, but in, in the uh, states here, we have something called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, uh, fifth edition. It's the manual that the psychiatrists use to uh, assign diagnosis. Do you have something equivalent there, or, or how does that work? For yeah, yourself? yeah, yeah, of course, of course. We, we have ICD-10. You're talking about Russia. Yeah, we definitely have something. And for research, we are using DSM-5. I see. Okay. Okay. Good. And so, as I'm looking at these these graphs, these, these are amazing. That these are, uh, like you say, biological signatures. And so, if I'm getting ahead of your talk, uh, let me know. But um, are you saying that uh, we can use neurofeedback to influence schizophrenia and Parkinson's and these, these other conditions? Here? Uh, uh, well. You know what, I think that uh, in, in these cases of this severe uh, brain dysfunction, I would recommend using uh, more a kind of a more strong intervention like TDCS, TMS. We are doing this uh, in our country. We are trying to, to uh, treat patients uh, using this methodology, TDCS and TMS. That's great. Yeah, but you, you, you can also try, of course, you can try uh, neurofeedback, like in case of uh, schizophrenia, you can try at FZ uh, frontal midline theta to increase uh, frontal midline theta. We know that, that it, it can help. It, at least it can help in enhancing working memory. And you're saying it... it um helps people uh, test reality, you, you uh, update yeah. working memory, update your mental imagery about what's real versus what you're seeing. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. exactly, exactly. And in Parkinsonism, there's uh, emerging evidence on sensory motor rhythm uh, being useful with Parkinson tremor and the rigidity seen in Parkinsonism as well. Uh, and the uh, uh, Barry Sturman has outed himself as having uh, early stages of Parkinson's disease now. So uh, the founder of SMR is uh, hopefully undergoing a lot of SMR training right now to try to forestall uh, progression for his, his Parkinson's disease. Yeah. Might be a good time now to show our joint research, Yuri, and, and maybe then you can comment also about our results pre to post neurofeedback. I, I, I think that uh, we met with Jay in Australia once on, on the conference, and uh, I went to Australia many times, and we worked together. It was nice memory. I miss those days. You know, I miss traveling. Yeah, I, I miss being face-to-face -face with you, too. I mean, there's only so many people that you can really absorb higher levels of uh, neuroscience from, and Yuri uh, is uh, an excellent source of of knowledge uh, in the neurosciences. So I'll tell you a little bit about what we did together and, and a little bit about STARTS as well. So our, our service uh, had a long history of working with survivors of torture and trauma. Uh, initially in uh, 80s, we started our work with uh, refugees from um, South America, uh, Argentina, Chile, and since then, we've seen clients from all around the world. So wherever the war is, after that, we've had an you know, influx of refugees. So we've seen clients from Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran. Um, and what 
I could see in my work as a clinician is that uh, post-traumatic stress is more brain disorder than mental disorder. And early on, um, I was employed in 2001, and by 2003, it was quite clear that all techniques and therapies that I learned to use didn't really make a big difference for quite chronic and complex cases that I've seen at that time. Um, and I was searching for a new way of addressing problem that I could see that is physiological problem. And I came across, uh, there was an interview with, uh, with Moishe. Uh, it was for current affair, if I remember well, it was about one of your clients. It was a child with quite severe um, uh, ADHD and behavioral problems who didn't respond to medication and all other interventions and neurofeedback really made a big difference. And I, immediately I could see some parallel between this was, if we could see physiological problem addressed through neurofeedback. And I've seen a lot of children in a school setting who were traumatized, who had very similar presentation. And I got in touch with Moshe, got trained by Moshe, bought, bought the equipment and introduced to my service. And over the years, uh, I, I could see that neurofeedback is really useful and it's helping with many presentations with uh, um, symptoms related to post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, it helps with insomnia, with symptoms of depression. Uh, and then I got really curious uh, because I couldn't see what is happening in the brain uh, I could see just raw traces while we were training, but I, I really was curious about how, what is there any brain signature of, of trauma? Uh, and we bought the equipment in 2010 and, and started to collect our data. And then what I could see is that we, we see different profiles. And just by trying to compare a group of clients pre to post neurofeedback, we couldn't find a really one difference in quantitative EEG that we can say, this is what is shifting and changing due to neurofeedback because profiles are different and changes pre to post neurofeedback are different and protocols that we were using were different. And then I came across uh, Professor Kropotov's work and it really made sense that if you look at the task, if you give brain a task and look at changes, there will probably it's more likely that we can see that a similar signature pre-neurofeedback changes related to trauma that uh, ERPs can capture. And I expected also that if you're doing a good job, then we should see some consistent differences post-neurofeedback. This was our study that was done in 2015-16. Um, and we were measuring event-related potential spirit to post-neurofeedback. And uh, because we are clinical service, we are not a research service, we are just curious clinicians. Uh, what we did was we had two group of clients. At that time, we had a lot of clients that were referred for neurofeedback and we had a huge waiting list. So what I decided to use as a research protocol is to, uh, first of all, measure uh, at the baseline when we admit clients to our clinic uh, using clinical and, and uh, also brain measures. And then one group of clients, as they are coming to the service, they're receiving neurofeedback and those that are coming later are waiting for service. And I've just taken clients first, uh, 13 clients that receive neurofeedback and first 13 clients that are waiting for neurofeedback on waiting list and, and then assess them 
at the end of neurofeedback treatment and for waiting list group at the end of waiting time. Group that was uh, waiting for neurofeedback was still receiving our usual uh, therapies uh, and, and we are using a range of uh, therapeutic interventions to help clients deal with the consequences of trauma. So we were using a range of protocols and even this can tell us that clients are having different, uh, we can see different brain signatures. Some of them are having more frontal, frontal lobe problems, hypercoherent, alpha frontally. Um, there is lot, a lot of problems such as fast beta frontocentrally uh, and a lot of changes that I believe that you, uh, UJ will talk later about, about temporal lobe changes. So therefore, there is no one protocol, neurofeedback protocol that will really fit everyone. Um, and you can see this is just from those 13 clients who received neurofeedback. You can already see that they were trained with different frequency range that we were rewarding or inhibiting and the range of protocols that we used to address symptoms that they had. And most of them had symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, chronic pain, and um, that's why we, over time, use more than one protocol with each client. So I'll just look, looking at this page. What, how can you expect to see the same difference pre to post for each client when we were using different protocols for each of them? And we're using a range of protocols for each client. Most of the time, we were working somewhere in the range of SMR, working with uh, sensory motor cortex, and also a lot of protocols, temporal, parietal cortex, and then more towards the end of the treatment, more just trying to engage frontal lobe, some protocols we use uh, as well, and also to address depression. So these are results for a group of clients that is 13 clients who received neurofeedback and 13 of waiting list. We could see big difference in symptoms of trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, and depression. Both groups improved that neurofeedback, those who received neurofeedback improved much more significantly more than waiting list group on all symptoms that we were measuring. And just looking at neurofeedback group, uh, what we could see is that all symptoms related to post-traumatic stress disorder, intrusions, numbing, anxious arousal, dysphoric arousal, avoidance, all symptoms were decreasing as a result of neurofeedback treatment, anxiety, depression as well. And also we were measuring uh, attention and uh, working memory. Uh, we were using digit spans from WISE and we saw improvement in cognitive functioning as well. Then the question was, are we going to see also differences in event-related potentials? And this led us to um, talk to Professor Yuri Kropotov. Uh, I asked him to analyze our data pre to post neurofeedback. We met at one of the conferences and after the conference, we stayed together. We brought our data to Yuri and he was with us in the room while he was doing the analysis. 
And I remember really well that Yuri wasn't happy with our data. It was messy, it wasn't well processed, and he was complaining while he was doing this. And um, both me and, and my research uh, uh, assistant, we, we really felt so bad. And I, I, I felt like sinking in the chair and I want to disappear because there is Yuri Krokotov and he is criticizing our work, even though this was terrible. I never saw such a messy data. And at the end, he cleaned everything, prepared our data for processing, processed our data. And then what we could see just change in, in his facial expression. And he said, bingo, we need to go and celebrate. And what was good is, okay, we did something good. Maybe we are not good researchers, but at the end we are good clinicians and um, um, actually uh, change in event-related potentials with NOGO uh, P300 uh, changed significantly. And then we wrote and published paper together. But Yuri, I would like you, if you can comment on this data and also why did we, what, what can you tell us why P300 is the one deviation from the norm that we've seen? And why is this one that, that, that changed after neurofeedback? Can, can you just help us understand a little bit better what we see? Well, it's actually quite similar to what we found uh, in case of, of neurofeedback uh, that was applied to ADHD. Remember that we have a paper in 2005 in which we showed that ERD can, can be quite sensitive to session of neurofeedback. And we compared a group of uh, good responders and uh, bad responders. And we compared these two groups and we found similar things, the, the changes in the, this ERP. And actually ERP that uh, we were um, showing here, they reflect uh, the uh, cognitive control. You know that uh, when uh, animal animal is presenting, so the subject is prepared, to receive animal and he prepared to make a response. So it's a prepotent uh, response, but when uh, instead of the animal, the, the plant is presenting, the, the subject has to withhold. First of all, the brain has to detect the conflict and then he has to withhold from uh, pr pressing a button. And uh, there are two operations. One is conflict monitoring, the other is uh, um, inhibition and both of them the operation of the cognitive control and this uh, picture simply tell us uh, that the cognitive control in this in this group of uh, subject is enhanced uh, and uh, and we know that uh, there is a, a kind of negative uh, a, a kind of inhibition between the uh, effective system and the cognitive control system and look like the, co the cognitive control system has been improved and uh, which would uh, inhibit the enhanced overactive uh, the effective system of the brain. So basically that is consistent with what we see, improvement in attention, improvement in the cognitive control, and improvement in, uh, in uh, effective domain. And, and, also... and the next step would be probably to decompose this ERP into independent components and to show what kind of independent components is actually improved. 
that this would be the next step. And Yuri, we saw not just changes in, in cognitive functioning, but actually decrease in, in symptoms of, of post-traumatic stress disorder. That, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That uh, the, the improvement in the cognitive control inhibits the overactive uh, affective system. And maybe lack of cognitive control actually limits ability of, of traumatized clients to dis disengage from traumatic memories and to modulate their uh, emotions. Yeah. yeah. Well, we know from your sign that there is inhibitory interaction between these two systems. Although they are they work independently, but uh, they, they have quite clear inhibitory, um, inhibitory control. So the high, high active affective system inhibits the cognitive control system and vice versa. Large overactive uh, cognitive control system inhibits uh, the affective system of the brain. So can we say then that uh, improvement in cognitive control underlies recovery from trauma? It's a top-down process. Mm, top -down I think a, it, it would be probably too straightforward. I don't, we don't know actually what is happening in the brain when, when we're doing neurofeedback. It could be both. Mm. Changes could be possible. Remember that, that still we, we, you are using neurofeedback EEG, spontaneous EEG for, for doing neurofeedback. You are not using anything which would, would be associated with even related potentials. So it, it's not easy to say what is exactly happening. Mm -hmm. And we are using different, you were using different protocols. So, but anyway, it looked like that all your interventions, they actually lead to improvement of the cognitive control system. Marianne, please tell us about START. Uh, START is a New South Wales-based service uh, for treatment and rehabilitation of uh, torture and trauma survivors. It was established in 1978, so it has a long history. Um, and we have around 250 staff members. Uh, we speak more than 50 different languages in our center. Um, many of our staff members are refugees themselves and asylum seekers, and um, that gives us the advantage of understanding our clients. Um, we are seeing clients from um, a range of different countries, uh, and we believe that we are offering service that is also culturally aware. Uh, Having a therapist who speak different languages and who are coming from different cultures is helping to understand um, our clients better. Um, in our work, we are, apart from neurofeedback, we, we use a range of interventions and we have the whole behavioral team that works. We have uh, also nutritionists, we have psychiatrists on board, uh, we have acupuncture therapists. So we have a holistic approach to trauma treatment. And we, our model is biopsychosocial model. So we really want to address trauma on all these different levels because trauma is affecting uh, someone's physiological functioning and, and also how they function in their family and the whole social fiber structure is, is also disintegrating with trauma and the refugee communities that are settling are themselves traumatized. So we have also a lot of interventions that are geared towards 
supporting refugee communities settling in Australia and rebuild their structure and, and, and life. And then Dr. Moshe, how, how do you work with uh, Mariana or do you guys work together? How, do, how does that relationship work out? I, I, I'm trying to connect the dots. Well, we, you know, we still speak to each other, which is a good thing. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I met Mariana in, uh, I guess, 2003 when uh, she first came to study neurofeedback. And um, we've been co colleagues really ever since. And we share information. We talk about different stuff. My role really in the field in Australia has been to bring neurofeedback to clinicians. Um, I started myself in about 1998 and uh, ADHD was my entry point. Um, I'm sure that I've got more than a touch of ADHD myself. So I understand when kids just don't stay focused at school or just don't do their schoolwork. And that's where I started. And right from the start, I saw that neurofeedback was very, very effective in helping kids with attention and focus issues. And then I think in about 2001, um, I started also teaching neurofeedback uh, to clinicians in Australia with Rob Bushkins, who actually brought neurofeedback to Australia in the mid-90s. From there, I started looking at EEG. I wanted to understand EEG and might have been about 2011 that I started working with Jay and that just opened a completely new way of understanding EEG, which has been, for me, very, very productive. And that, you know, to this day, I still remember bits and pieces that Jay says about things. And... Um, I've just incorporated them in, in the way I try to understand EEG. So my role is to teach those things to people in Australia. And um, fortunately, I've been able to do that for a while now. Okay, briefly, you, you've talked about working with the Australian sports. Was it a swimming team uh, or rowing team? What, what, who Austra did you work with? Australian Institute for Sports, and, and the, they, they were not just one specific sport. Uh, that uh, across the board of elite athletes, uh, kind of like the U.S. Olympic Committee, um, and uh, uh, they they uh, did some specific research on uh, on their athletes. Uh, they were having uh, tremendous difficulty with sleep. Uh, elite athletes are finely tuned instruments, and uh, some of them are a little tightly wrapped, uh, 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 and. Uh, difficulty with sleep is very common with excess beta. We actually see a little bit more uh, frontal central beta in the elite athletes than the normal population. Um, and uh, we suggested that they try some sensory motor rhythm to assist with sleep onset and wakefulness insomnia. Uh, they, they structured a study and actually looked at the outcome. Uh, they've now instituted uh, just straight out uh, SMR training for any of the athletes that have difficulty with insomnia because it worked out so well. And um, uh, uh, oh goodness, I'm blocking on her name. Uh, Shona Halston uh, was the um, uh, sports physiologist who was involved in that study. Uh, 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 she came over to the U.S. and uh, presented the outcomes at one of the AAPB meetings. So it's um, it, it, it's, it's been an interesting uh, group to work with in Australia. They have a lot of uh, a broad range of applications from 
uh, traditional ADD depression type clinical practices to starts uh, all the way to the athletes. So it, it's been a broad spectrum of uh, applications. And, you know, luckily uh, there's brains in all of these applications. So uh, I, I got to play with the data from uh, a lot of different areas. And uh, uh, Yuri and I have focused, uh, uh, I've been more specialized in QEG and Yuri's obviously uh, a world expert in ERP. Um, and when we get together, we like to try to integrate uh, into higher levels of modeling. So, Mariana, what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you? It's probably the best to access our website. Uh, it's www.anfi.org.au. And we are providing information about our services and also about our training. We'll have everything in the podcast notes. Yuri, what's the best way for our uh, listeners and viewers to learn more about you? Uh, well, they definitely the Institute of the Human Brain has uh, its own web page. But you know what? I'm teaching uh, the courses, and basically, I start. I will start actually teaching the course for a group of people in the United States. And uh, this is called uh, the um, something with event-related potentials, ERP something group. And uh, I think that, uh, yeah, so everyone who, who would like uh, to join this group, you're welcome. And uh, you just need to con uh, connect uh, an, any freak, freak from the United States. I think it, she lives in uh, California. So yeah. about, about a year ago, uh, uh, folks in the U.S. asked me to teach a course on ERP. And I said, well, if you can get Yuri, you should get Yuri. I mean, there's a real expert. You don't need to use me. And uh, uh, they, they did a, a, a large group uh, that went through Yuri's book one chapter at a time, uh, uh, digesting the book. And then Yuri did a, a series of lectures and workshops, uh, hands-on workshops uh, with everybody even at their own home, uh, ha having the equipment, uh, you know, uh, uh, hooked up and doing ERP uh, um, assessments. So uh, I, I was glad to see uh, that that Yuri could do it because that's a lot of work, and uh, uh, I, I'm I'm kind of retired now. So it uh, is not, uh, you know, it's not hard work. It's a pleasure. Yes. Yes. Well. <laughs> uh, it, ERP for you is a pleasure. Uh, QEG for me is a pleasure. So ERP for me would be work. So uh, <laughs> uh, it, it worked out very well. Uh, uh, and the group that uh, that attended were extremely well satisfied with it. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I'm happy. Yeah. This would be the second round of the workshops. Uh, the first round was in 2021. Yeah. And now we are, we are starting in, in, at the end of January the second round. And Dr. Well, Mosh, what, what's the best way for our listeners and viewers to learn, learn about you? Uh, our website is neurotherapy.com.au. So just Google a website and then you can get in touch with me and we can have a chat about where you want to take neurofeedback. Absolutely. Well, we thank you guys so much for spending your morning with us. Uh, for you, it's morning. For me, it's uh, night. 
<laughs> Australia morning, Russia night, and it's afternoon here 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 in Chicago. We've be, we've become an international show. We're 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 trying to figure it out. There's there's no perfect time to handle everybody. No, no. <laughs> Hey, we thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters, Outrageous Baking. They're a dedicated gluten-free bakery that has been around for 15 years. Check them out at OutrageousBaking.com. TorTalk wants more people to discover text-to-speech at TorTalk.se. An alternative behavioral therapy, Neurofeedback Service in Vancouver, Washington. Just ask for Joshua M. We'd also like to thank our supporters, EGME, M, Jonathan Rowan, January Terrell. And I'd like to welcome our new supporter, Loretta T. Hey, do you have an idea for a topic or a guest? Please email Pete at neuronoodle.com or leave us a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you really, really like us, please buy us a coffee on Patreon slash Neuronoodle. We love our Patreon peeps, don't we, Jay? Absolutely. They get great coverage on this show, don't they? (laughs) Cue the music.